Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Noreen Kowaja, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Yale University and winner of the AAR Book Award in Constructive Reflective Studies. She's here to speak to us about her book, The Religion of Existence, Asceticism in Philosophy from Kierkegaard to Sartre, by, published by the University of Chicago Press. Congratulations, Noreen, and thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So this book, uh, I really enjoyed. It's not only very smart, but also beautifully written. I'm wondering if you could start us off a little bit about how the project emerged and what you were hoping to achieve with the book. Yes. So the project in its first incarnation um, began as a, as a study of two of the philosophers in the book, Heidegger and Kierkegaard. And as I sort of went along and I was immersing myself in, in the materials um, uh, in some of their works, a couple of questions began to jump out at me that had always sort of attracted me in, in, in 19th and 20th century philosophy. And one was um, the salience, the sort of prominence of the concept of affirmation, affirmation um, in the sense of a philosophy which has been sort of making its place in an increasingly secular modern Europe in uh, a kind of environment where the uh, dominant ideological and uh, conceptual frame of Christian theology is at most uh, sort of uh, falling into the kind of uh, situation that one might call the death of God, uh, at least uh, becoming increasingly questioned. And a kind of thinking about affirmation in philosophers from uh, Nietzsche to Kierkegaard to Heidegger, who, I, who I'm looking at in, in, in the book, um, became extremely important in that context uh, in the sense that one was, one was looking at the ways of cent- making central uh, this life, that is, this life in this world and without reference to some kind of transcendent uh, sphere. And that, um, that idea of affirmation, which became a trope of a lot of 20th century uh, critics and thinkers who, um, who were tracing the history of this, of this, of this philosophical uh, uh, conversation, um, they, they tended to see it as a way in which modern philosophy in, in, in these European contexts distanced itself from its religious past. That is, in contrast with those religious Christian folks who were always going on about the afterlife and what would happen um, uh, 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 in, in, the other, um, in the other transcendent realm, so to speak, putting it very crudely, in contrast with that kind of thinking, uh, existentialism, modern philosophy, uh, understands itself within some kind of break with that tradition. And one way of understanding the kind of gesture, the basic gesture, the conceptual gesture that, that, that structures that break is to affirm this life. And as I saw that concept working its way throughout the existential tradition, um, especially around this idea of personal authenticity, that is what I am, what a self is, is uh, something which I am myself accountable for. That is, I don't have anyone else to appeal. There's no higher judge, no higher court. 
no God, if you want to put it in that in those terms. Authenticity became uh, an important concept in that tradition that was sort of existentialism's version of this affirmative thinking about this worldly existence. And as I began to sort of think about that, that idea, it became clear to me that um, thinking about affirmative authenticity as some kind of distancing from religion was entirely the wrong frame. And all the readings that I'd been doing in the history of modern Christian theology actually convinced me that there was an important conversation and an important connection between um, specifically uh, ideas about personal conversion that had become very important in, in, in certain Protestant contexts, Protestant pietism, um, and this existential authenticity, which was everywhere in our world today. You can see traces of it in in, in contemporary culture. Uh, uh, one doesn't have to look too far, um, whether it's uh, uh, in sort of pop psychology or in uh, management literature. There's 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 there there are very prominent sort of um, uh, strains of this. But so this idea, which had understood itself to be a big sort of part of uh, uh, philosophies distancing itself from the history of religion. I started to suspect something otherwise. And the book represents my attempt to sort of think through, rethink through that connection. And it's uh, very convincing that you tie all these loose strings together very clearly. So you focus on the book on on three characters, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, Martin Heidegger, and Jean-Paul Sartre. Can you briefly tell us uh, uh, just a bit about these figures to kind of situate listeners and potential readers? And why do you bring these three figures into conversation? Why do you, why do you focus on their work? Just to sort of give you a, a couple of words about each of them, um, Kierkegaard is often described as the father of existentialism in, in one sort of narrative about him. He's a Danish uh, religious thinker and philosopher who has... Uh, uh, as many hats as one wants to give him, uh, he wrote with uh, with great uh, with sort of increasing frequency, almost sort of sermonic type discourses, religious discourses. Late in his uh, incre- with increasing frequency, late in his career, he wrote satires. He wrote uh, uh, sort of more abstract religious texts. He wrote a very famous book, uh, Fear and Trembling, which uh, uh, involved a kind of dramatic critical retelling of the Abraham and Isaac story. Um, and he, he's a figure who, um, among these sort of various types of of writing became, as I said, uh, understood as a kind of father for existentialism. The existentialism that grew out of him, however, in, um, in the, in its most, uh, globally renowned forms and through thinkers like Jean-Paul Sartre and, uh, and Camus and Simone de Beauvoir, um, was a thinking that had, uh, in contrast with the sort of uh, very uh, Lutheran background in, in Kierkegaard's work, had, had been well known for being atheistic. And in fact, if you if you didn't know anything else about existentialism in its sort of French, uh, uh, later 20th century French variant, you might know that it st- stood for a world without God, um, which is a misconception, but it was nonetheless a sort of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, one of the dominant ways of understanding it throughout the 20th century. And in between them, um, you have uh, and Sartre himself. I'll say, uh, I'll say for his for his part, uh, was uh, a, a writer of um, of equal uh, diversity to 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 Kierkegaard. And in, and in between the two figures, you have a German philosopher, Martin Heidegger, who um, who 
read a lot of Kierkegaard, who um, shared with Kierkegaard some some fundamental concerns about um, the shape of subjectivity, the relationship between subjectivity and time, who um, had been trained and formed in a religious background. In his case, it was a Catholic background, but had moved toward a kind of philosophical Protestantism early in his uh, early in his academic career, um, and who was deeply influential for Sartre. So those are sort of three uh, uh, the three the three main figures of of the work. They're not the three main figures of existentialism in any necessary sense, but the reason my work focuses on them is because. Um, the concept of authenticity, which of existential authenticity, this idea um, that um, uh, a kind of norm that applies to the self, which isn't about being oneself, uh, as I argue, um, and as it's often understood, but is about appropriating oneself, making oneself one's own. And that idea, um, which I'm tracing in the work, um, is most substantively treated in these three characters, these three um, in these three figures. So it's for that reason because I found them to be the kind of sites, their work to be the kind of sites where the most um, uh, original work was going on around that idea of personal authenticity. That they became uh, the three main characters of the of the of the book. Yeah, and this this key thread, this interrelationship between existential authenticity and then uh, what we might call Protestant, a Protestant tradition of self-cultivation. Mm-hmm. How do these notions of personal authenticity, conversion, asceticism, how do they come together in your argument? What, what are you trying to demonstrate through their connection? So in a way, I can, I can start by saying, uh, you know, I wanted to show the similarity in structure between the kind of work on the self that gets done in some of these um, pietistic traditions in which personal conversion uh, is made uh, to take a place that um, it doesn't have in lots of other religious traditions and in lots of other strains of Christianity. Um, That is the idea that one's faith is to be anchored by a personal conscious decision or moment of awareness in which one asserts and sees um, and sees clearly that the relation to God has come to take hold of one's life. So in other words, it's, it's, it's a way of um, being Christian, which understands being Christian as something that has to sort of happen to one in the very space of one's life, not something that can sort of predate one, one's conscious experience. And so in that, I, I could start by saying, okay, I saw, I saw some connections between that kind of work on the self and the kind of work on the self that, um, uh, that became part of existential traditions of thinking about pers- personal authenticity. But it's it's that's that's sort of a beginning way of of narrating it. What I was actually what I realized at some point in examining the connections between these ideals and Kierkegaard, who was raised up in Pietism, was a kind of translator of that religious tradition into a philosophical and psychological idiom that then became deployed by some of these later thinkers. And so as I started to think, what's really the form of this connection? What am I trying? What am I seeing here um, that's worth talking about? It was more than something about the similarity between these two kinds of work on the self. It was also um, about seeing the way in which um, a kind of 
zone of human experience, which one might identify as religious in this pietistic communities, the example I was looking at, was was doing something in the history of modern European subjectivity that I didn't I, I personally wasn't aware of having been been sort of noticed before, and I certainly hadn't noticed it. And so, so what is it? It's that there's something happening in a sense with the way that consciousness, personal individual consciousness, is being allied with an idea of redemption. That is, to become conscious of one's life is not only a sort of intellectual gesture, but it's a, it's, a, it's a movement of the spirit, which gives value. Now, there'll be echoes of this idea in philosophers from uh, Hegel to Kant, and, uh, and you name it in this, in this modern uh, philosophical tradition. But um, what, I, what I saw in digging into some of these pietist sources was, um, in a sense, the communities where these moral muscles, these psychological muscles had been developed and trained in ways that people who are working on the history of philosophy often don't sort of notice. And so I think what I was trying to, what I was trying to, to get at in the deepest way is it's not just that there's a similarity between modern philosophy and some of these religious traditions of, that one is adapting ideas of, of the other. It's that how are we drawing these lines? Why are we calling one religious and the other philosophical? And why do I call uh, pietist self-conscious Protestant, but uh, the self-consciousness that looks in certain formal ways very, very similar to that in uh, Kierkegaard or, or Sartre, why am I calling that philosophical? And so the work is trying to raise some of those questions uh, about boundary drawing and to ask us to consider the history of religion and the history of philosophy in these contexts, not just as connected, but actually as part of the same traditions of developing ideas and practices about the self. And so that that's kind of the at the grandest level what I was trying to do, I suppose. So, uh, of course, we don't have time to go into all the details, but um, maybe we can get, get into uh, some of the specifics, uh, beginning with Kierkegaard. He, of course, is a Christian theologian in, in many ways of understanding that or at least speaking to questions of becoming Christian in his social context. Yes. What, what, what would you say um, is key to understanding his notion of choosing oneself? Uh, what, what specifically can we pinpoint him producing that as being picked up by later uh, authors? Yes. So I think one of the things that makes Kierkegaard feel in our, in our, in our time so close to us is um, you know, and, and that's that can be somewhat surprising when you think about the context that he was writing in, which was a context a highly uh, homogenous in terms of its religious culture. It was entirely Lutheran Denmark, his nineteenth century Denmark, and um, and very white. And you know, you don't you don't have uh, the Muslims that you have in Copenhagen today. We're not living in Denmark at the time. So what is so you know one of the one of the reasons why this thinker who in some ways in his in his life was extremely parochial he hardly ever left very very uh, sort of uh, specific trajectories he would go on his walks he stayed in his apartment he was a very sort of homebodied figure apart from a couple of trips to Berlin um, he one of the things that makes him speak to us I think is the fact that he was he was writing for. His, for the for the idea toward the idea of becoming a Christian at a time when though Denmark was not a plural society in the ways we might think of that term today, 
it was becoming increasingly secular. And for him, what secular meant or what, what that word really referred to was actually was what might in another, in another context be called uh, the very dominance of Christianity, which is Christianity becomes so powerful in a particular culture that it becomes taken for granted. It can be taken for granted as a matter of course. Everyone's a Christian. I'm a Christian. What does Christian mean? Christian means just simply being there, being a part of this culture. And what he lamented and what he sort of worked against in almost all of his writing was the relaxation of that um, uh, spiritual muscle that he saw happening around him in the very dominance of Christianity that people had forgotten what it was. And that makes him interesting because it makes him a secular writer, a writer who understands his task as writing for an increasingly secular uh, culture. and. Um, one who attempted to define the role that Christianity plays and the, the meaning, really, of Christianity in that, um, in that context. And so choice, what does it mean to choose oneself in line with some of his Protestant background? To choose, um, he, he developed an idea of choice that was not exactly how we might understand it colloquially, which is, you know, I choose, um, you know, whether to have my dinner at 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. or I choose the red or the, the green apple, not choosing between discrete options, but something slightly one step before that, which is in choosing anything and choosing between any two things or any, uh, any possibility at all. One can also imagine that I'm also seeing at some implicit level that choice as something which I have to make, something which I'm responsible for. And a lot of his thinking burrowed into that sort of moment which we often ignore in our everyday choices, which is you can look at a choice as choosing between two things. You can also look at a choice as choosing to make that choice, taking responsibility for making that choice. And it's in that sort of subtext, subtexture of the choice, where his idea of freedom and choosing oneself lay. Because if you identify a choice as something you must be responsible to make, then you're also saying, I'm responsible. There's something, uh, there's something I, I owe. I'm, I'm, I, I owe to myself or I owe, um, I owe to someone or to something. And, and it's in that space that he began to think about choice, not just as a, a kind of execution of a preference or something on that order, but as something that could have real moral value, as something that could be linked to freedom and to redemption. Um, so, so, so choice in his, in, his, in his idiom is something in line with this Protestant background where conversion is something that has to happen in the conscious experience of my life. It's not something that's sort of given to me by my family background or by my culture to choose one's way in the world, to choose who one is and what one does, is to see that those, those, those basic aspects of life are things for which we're responsible, for things for which we can hold ourselves responsible. And that's to see a kind of new dimension for work on the self to come in and to, and to take hold in these, in these minute spaces. And so he, he had this sort of Protestant pietistic background, a way of imagining the redemptive potential of becoming conscious uh, of one's engagements and applied it in uh, a, a way of thinking about choices which 
spun out into the everyday, to the banal and, and, and to the beautiful in, in, in a much broader, um, more psychological idiom than, than the pietists that, that, that developed it. So um, as these authors transform this kind of authentic notion of selfhood and authentic existence, they're very much engaged with Christian ideas, as you, you set up in the introduction. I think you say existentialism is about Christianity in many ways. And uh, one of the things you highlight is uh, the notion of sinfulness, the sinful condition of human beings kind of uh, shapes how, how these authors are thinking through many of these notions. So where and how would you say the notion of sin plays out in the development of existential philosophy? Yes, and I'll just start with this tiny anecdote, which is that if there is among among the philosophers who like the sort of atheistic strands of existentialism, the thing that bothers them most about the idea that existentialism has religious roots or religious ideas at its core is the idea that you'd have to take somehow sin along with it. That is this idea that there's something rotten about human existence that we uh, as as fallen sinful beings um, are are um, are to blame for, and so in in um, in in thinking about the connections between the idea of personal authenticity that comes through in in existential thought and ideas about conversion and redemption in Christianity, the idea that quickly comes to mind is, wait, okay, if authenticity is like conversion, then inauthenticity, that pesky thing that we're supposed to maybe avoid um, in being ourselves, um, is that something like sin? Are we saying that when we're not authentically ourselves in this existential vein, we are being sinful, we're sinning? We're falling into sin, and that that was a, that has that has been a, a thought that I think troubled a lot of uh, scholars and readers who noted some of the connections between these existential ideas and their theological counterparts. And what I began to to, to notice in looking, especially at the way in which Kierkegaard and Heidegger um, deploy and engage ideas of sin, was that it's not where you'd expect. It's not that inauthenticity means we've fallen into a kind of sinful state, but you have to sort of take a step back. And for each of them, they have a kind of, uh, Kierkegaard, who was most, uh, let's say, uh, interested in the direct Christian conceptions of sinfulness and and, and the fall, more more so than Heidegger, which who adapted them in a more formal way. Um, and Kierkegaard was really interested in these dogmatic ideals, but he distanced himself. He hated, in fact, the idea of a kind of hereditary sin, something that could be passed on from generation to generation. He rather thought of sin as something that identified a rupture or a break in the very structure of consciousness itself. And in thinking about sin as something that had a psychological referent, an existential referent, something that described a feature of consciousness, of human being in the world, which was never quite able, what what finitude means, what finite consciousness means, is that we're never quite able to lay hold of ourselves entirely. There's always something that exceeds something that out, outpaces our grasp. And it was in, in looking at that structure of consciousness that the idea of sinfulness uh, uh, became interesting in, in, in Kierkegaard and then and then into Heidegger. And so one of the things I was surprised to find and also uh, excited in a way to find was to, to be able to trace, I think, 
uh, a little more um, precisely what happens to this concept of sin and that and why it doesn't simply mean to say if we think that personal authenticity is uh, allied with or related a kind of kin with Christian conceptions of conversion and redemption, why it doesn't mean to say uh, accordingly that inauthenticity is somehow sin. And, uh, and so, so in the last chapter, I was trying to explore that sort of surprising disconnection that, um, that sin actually got absorbed into existential thinking about the very structure of consciousness itself. And for them, they use the word time to describe that structure of consciousness, that there's something spread out, excessive about consciousness, that one cannot be present all at one time. What time means is that kind of distension of mind. And that goes all the way back to Augustine, if you want to, if you want another Christian source for that. But, um, but so that, that's kind of what I was, I was, I was probing in there. And I, I knew that it was something that troubled a lot of readers of existentialism who, who didn't want the kind of moral, um, uh, the moral black mark of sin on their consciousnesses in, in, in adopting an idea of authenticity, which seems to be rooted in this tradition. And I wanted to say, well, uh, in a sense, it, it's not where you think it is. Well, Noreen, it's, it's a wonderful book and uh, I'm sorry we don't have more time to, to talk about it. Uh, but before I let you go, I'm wondering if you could just maybe think about um, how do you imagine that others in the study of religion might benefit from your work, either in applying your conclusions or uh, echoing your your approach and methods. Um, what do you what do you think other AAR members might do after encountering your book? Well, I, I hope it gives people who are in there a lot of people in the AAR who are interested in the history of asceticism and transhistorical thinking about asceticism. Asceticism is a is a is a kind of category or a term that traverses lots of our different fields, and so I hope it gives uh, some encouragement to those who are thinking about patterns of work and the way that work and value are related, and to, to think about um, to think about another context when they might not expect. Uh, to, to sort of make those connections. Um, I also hope at a, at a, at a broad level that it, um, that it might uh, speak to those who are interested in, in the problem, which I think has become uh, quite ripe and uh, ready for, for new thoughts these days of what's the role of um, thought of history of ideas of thinking and philosophy in the study of religion more broadly. And it's, also, not only uh, uh, something that that I think uh, uh, troubles or 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 um, concerns those working in in sort of more Christian fields, but but in lots of different fields. And and I I was trying to work out in this book, I would say, a model for doing thought, for thinking about the history of ideas, which um, feeds into and out of uh, thinking about culture and practice. And um, commun- and religious communities and traditions in a way that uh, sometimes intellectual history doesn't do. And so, I, I guess I hope that it that it uh, that it might speak in in sort of both of those two kinds of ongoing question fields. Well, congratulations again on your award. Uh, it's uh, well deserved. Thank you very much for talking. It's been a pleasure. 